I want us to turn in our Bibles to the epistle of James, James chapter 1, and reading a few verses therein. James chapter 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. If you had to list the major things that you need in life, what would you include on that list? People will answer differently. Some might conceive their greatest need as money, and who does not need money to live? We may consider it to be employment or health, peace or even happiness. But scripture perceives that among our greatest need, our greatest needs, wisdom is to be singled out as amongst the most important of our needs. And James makes this point in this epistle that is directed to believers who are scattered throughout the Roman Empire. This is a circular letter, and it is a letter that, that deals with the practical aspects of the faith. It is very easy for us to drift into a more cerebral and academic faith, where we are concerned about discussing weighty theological matters and forget that Christianity is not merely to be thought through, but to be lived through. And James instructs us how we are to live the Christian life. He begins by telling us in the first few verses of this epistle that we are to count it joy that our trials are to be considered as joy. And he says we should do so knowing that the testing of our faith produces patience. He says we are to consider our trials to be joy because of the outcome, because our trials develop within us perseverance. And through perseverance, we are matured. We are complete. Perfect here does not mean sinless, 
but it means that we are mature and complete, lacking nothing. It is after that he has encouraged believers to consider their trials joy because of the outcome of their trials that he talks to them about the need for wisdom. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. In fact, from verses 2 to 12, he's still dealing with the subject of trials and enduring trials and through that coming to maturity. But in the midst of this discussion about trials, James presses the need for wisdom. I want us to look then at wisdom, at least from the perspective of James, the brother of our Lord. I want us to consider first the nature of wisdom. First of all, as you read, it becomes obvious that the writer conceives wisdom first and foremost as essential. He declares, if any one lacks wisdom, that is, if anyone falls short of it or is deficient of wisdom, let him ask God. Now, when he says, if anyone lacks wisdom, James does not doubt that believers will lack wisdom. That is not how the original is constructed. There is no doubt there in James' mind. He writes with the assumption that believers will lack wisdom. And so he says, if anyone lacks wisdom, and I know that you do, let him ask God. You see, the writer perceives wisdom as essential. And this is in keeping with the Old Testament scripture. You think of Proverbs 8 verse 35 where the writer says that the one who finds wisdom finds life and finds the favor of God. Wisdom is essential for life, for eternal life, and it is a sign that one has received the grace and the favor of God. The book of Proverbs therefore emphasizes our great need for wisdom. Solomon considered it chief in the requirements of God's people. Verse 5 functions here as a janus. It looks in two directions. It looked backward at this requirement for joy and perseverance in trials, and it looks forward to what will come. And he's saying that it is essential if we are going to endure trials and mature in the faith that we receive wisdom. It is precisely because suffering, and I want you to hear me clearly, it is precisely because suffering does not of itself or inevitably leads to spiritual growth. James says, if you are suffering, I want you to consider it all joy because suffering produces perseverance and perseverance leads you to maturity. But James knows that suffering by itself does not intrinsically lead to spiritual growth. There are many, many pitfalls in sufferings. One who suffers may give way, for instance, to bitterness. If you have been enduring hardship and illness for a very long time, 
There will be temptations to doubt God, to be even, dare I say, resentful. Why is it that God does not hear? Has God forgotten me? Is God incapable of working? Is my faith in God proper? Is God deserving of faith? You see, it, suffering, prolonged suffering, can lead to many dark questions about God and his nature. It may move us to withdraw from fellowship where we stop praying because we think that God doesn't really hear, he doesn't do anything, so why bother praying? Prolonged suffering brings with it dangers. It may cause us to fall into temptation and into sin. So James says, if you are to endure suffering and mature in the faith, you need wisdom. You need wisdom from God. You need wisdom. James knows that suffering can overcome us. Take, for instance, in that Psalm 73. It's a, it's a powerful psalm. Psalm 73, the psalmist says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My step had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not troubled as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride serves as their necklace, graphic imageries. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They are so prosperous off, their eyes are just popping out. They have more than the heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly. Concerning oppression, they speak loftily. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues walk through the earth. The psalmist was looking at the unbelievers. He saw how they oppressed God's people. And in all of the oppression, they were getting richer and richer. They didn't seem to have a problem in the world. They had everything at their own disposal. It seemed that God was blessing them and his people were being cursed. And that, that disturbed the psalmist until he says, I went up to the temple and I saw their end. Suffering can cause great questioning. And so he says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. But the question then is, what is wisdom? Now, first of all, we need to comprehend that Sophia, wisdom, as used by James, and I would suggest the rest of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, books like Job and Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, that when these books refer to wisdom, at least Sophia in the Septuagint, that the notion is not first and foremost intellectual. We can talk about Philosophy, which comes from two Greek words, philos and sophia. 
a love of wisdom. And that is, by very nature and definition, a love of intellectual wisdom. But when James says, if a man lacks wisdom, he is not speaking primarily of intellectual comprehension, though that is not entirely excluded. For the wisdom, at least to the Hebrew mind, was first of all not only essential, but practical and ethical. The wisdom books stress the practical nature of wisdom. This is seen, for instance, in the conduct of Solomon. You remember the story of Solomon, as we have it in 1 Kings, chapter 3 and 13 and following, uh, 16 and following, where these two women are, are fighting over this one child as to who is the real mother. And Solomon was wise. He wanted to divide the child in two and give each of these women a part of the child, or at least half of the child. What did the real mother do? She refused to have the child cut in two. She says, no, you know, and by the way, I'm paraphrasing here. <laughs> Let the other lady or the other woman have the child, because she would rather lose her right to the child than to have the child that she has born be killed. And Solomon recognized that she was the real mother. You see, the wisdom Solomon had was a practical wisdom, not simply intellectual. It is, it is then this wisdom where we are reminded by one writer, it is, it is to set worthy goals and to use the best means to attain them. That's biblical wisdom, to set worthy goals and use the best means to attain them. And those others have described the wisdom of which James speaks as the skill of right living. It is in this sense that James uses wisdom. That is, wisdom is practical and ethical. You can see that, for instance, in chapter 3 of James, he speaks about wisdom again. He says in verses 3 to 17, he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by his conduct that his works are done in the meekness of truth. So one who is wise produces works, good works, practical works, that are done in humility and in truth. In verse 15 he says, This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. There is a wisdom, an earthly wisdom, that is contrary to the wisdom of God. He says, but the wisdom that is from above is pure, then peaceable and gentle and willing to yield, willing to submit. Where there is evidence of, of heavenly wisdom, people are peaceable, gentle, willing to submit, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. You notice that here, James described uh, wisdom in terms of its ethical conduct. And so biblical wisdom, the wisdom that James requires that we ask of God, is not, first of all, intellectual comprehension, though that is, as I said to you, not excluded, but the, but the skill of right living, the ability to set worthy goals and to use the best means to accomplish them. Wisdom, then of which James speaks, is essential. 
It is required of all believers. It is practical and ethical. And thirdly, this wisdom is divine, a divine bestowal. James says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Let him ask of God. Why? Why should he ask of God? Because God is the source of wisdom. James, already in the passage I read from James chapter 3, says the wisdom which comes down from above is peaceable. It comes from heaven. It comes from God. The wisdom, then, is not only is it essential and practical and ethical, but it is by divine bestowal. It is a gift of God. And you see this, for instance, in Proverbs 2 verse 6. He says, for the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth, comes knowledge and understanding. Wisdom, by nature, is a gift of God because God is the fountain of all wisdom. He himself is infinitely wise. Well, if we see the nature of wisdom, that it is essential, it is practical and ethical, and that wisdom is a divine bestowal, we then want to look, then, at the acquisition of wisdom. How do we acquire wisdom? And so James says, if anyone lacks wisdom, and no doubt they do, and you do, let him ask of God. How does one acquire wisdom according to James? James says, you're to ask of God. He doesn't say we're to go and study to become wise or talk to wise people, although that is not necessarily a bad thing. But he says that they must ask of God. And indeed, twice, he tells us this in verse 5, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. In verse 6, let him ask in faith. Here James directs us to approach God, the true source of wisdom. And notice he uses the imperative. This is not now some good suggestion that he's giving. He says if you need wisdom as you deal with the conflicts and trials of life, you must Ask God. This is not a suggestion. It is an imperative. It is a command. If any one of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Let him go to the sovereign creator of the heavens and the earth. The God who is the repository of all wisdom. You will notice, secondly, that he makes it the duty of all believers each believer to ask. If anyone lacks wisdom, let that person, that individual, ask God. It is the duty. Not only is it a command, but it is the duty of every believer to ask God. Indeed, James could say, you lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and you war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. God gives wisdom to those who ask. You find the same encouragement to ask. Jesus himself could say to the disciples, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. 
and to him who knocks it will be open. If a son ask for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit, which is the greatest of gifts, to those who ask him? In Luke chapter 11, 9 to 13. How do you get wisdom? James says, you must go to God and you must ask. He then gives us incentives for asking. Let's go back to the text. If any of you lack, lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And then he begins to incentivize this command to ask. He says of God, who gives liberally. That is the first incentive for asking is the knowledge that God gives. That God hears and God responds. That our requests are not ours merely shut off in the darkness. We are not just spouting words that are aimlessly intended, that reaches nowhere, but our words go up to God. He hears them and he responds. He says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives. And you and I need to know that we come to God because he is a giving God. In fact, from the creation of the world, God has been giving and has not stopped giving. He says, he gives. That's the first incentive. Secondly, that God gives generously. And the adverb that he uses here is rare. It's a term that means sincerely and openly, and yes, generously. And so at first blush, he's saying we are to go to God not only because God gives, but because God gives generously. That is, God gives sincerely and without mental revelation, reservation, one writer tells us. God gives. He gives generously. He gives an abundance of supply to those who are need, needy because God is by nature generous. He is an abounding, unfathomable source of good. Paul tells Timothy, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, not to be proud, not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly more than we can, we can accommodate, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. He could say, our Lord in Luke 6, give and it will be given to you good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. God is a generous God. So, so often, as I have said on many occasions, our thoughts of God are too hard. We think of God as a celestial Scrooge. We've got to wrestle things out of him. He doesn't really want to give much. But this is a God who gives and gives generously and he gives to all. Not to a select favorite, but he gives to all. In fact, he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. 
And so he says, if any man lacks wisdom, let him come to a generous God. He gives and he gives generously. He gives and he gives again and again and again. There was a young man whose father was a lawyer and who enjoyed lecturing his son. So one summer, this young man who wanted to be a lawyer like his father decided to go into work for his father. And so his father, who was a lawyer, heard him conversing with his friends one day. One of his friends said to him, so I hear you're working for your father this summer. How much is he paying you? And he said, $3,000. $75 a week, and the rest of it he will give as legal advice. You see, God is not like that. God is not trying to cut corners, trying to hold back on us, trying to cheat us out of what we should get. God is the one who gives generously. He gives overwhelming gifts because fundamentally God is sufficient for himself and for all of us. James says, if any man lacks wisdom, let him come to God who gives and gives generously. And the third thing he said about God as an incentive is that he gives without reproach. That is, when God gives, he does not grumble or complain against those who seek him. He doesn't say, you know what, didn't, didn't I see you yesterday? Did, didn't you not just come to the throne of grace yesterday begging me for grace? And I get, what did he do with that? Why? He, doesn't, he, he doesn't give grudgingly. He doesn't reprove and rebuke. He does not put us down for coming. He is a generous and a willing giver. These are the incentives. You must come to God because God gives, God gives generously, and he gives without reproaching, without rebuking, without putting you down. You know, if you, if you had anybody, you go to them every day and say, you know, can I have some money or can I have some bread? Or After a while, they get tired of you, right? Probably they hide from you when they see you coming, right? And the writer probably says, don't go to your neighbor's house too often. Why? Because they become tired of you. Even your relatives, if you keep asking them for things like every day or every week, will try to hide from you. God is a willing, willing giver. So we notice the nature of wisdom. We've seen the the fact that the writer calls upon us to go to God. He tells us how we acquire wisdom by praying, by seeking God. But he tells us the manner in which we are to gain wisdom. In verse 6 he says, But let him ask in faith without doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. What James tells us is that if we lack wisdom, we must come to God, and God is eager and generous in his giving. But he tells us that if we are going to receive anything from God, we must have faith. He, he points out the indispensability of faith for obtaining wisdom. He tells us what we need positively and then negatively. 
He says that when we come, we must believe. Let him who ask, ask in faith. He must come to God and he must believe. But what is faith? What is this pistis of which James speaks? The writer of Hebrews says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It is holding on to the invisible. It is believing and trusting even one does not yet see. Faith, then, essentially, is settled conviction. It is firm reliance upon God. And he says that when one comes and asks of God for wisdom, he must come in faith. Later on, the writer of Hebrews will tell us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. It is impossible to please God without faith. So he says that those who come must believe. And then he says it negatively. He says, without doubting. With no doubting that the one who comes to God must not doubt. Diacrino literally means to differentiate, to judge, and to dispute. To doubt is essentially to dispute with one's self. It is to have an internal dialogue and argument. It is to be engaged in an internal talk of war. James says that when we come, we must believe, we must not doubt. And he gives the reasons why we should not doubt. He says, first, for, that's showing you the reason, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the winds. That the man who doubts is now compared to a restless, the restless sea. The man who, who doubts is like the wave that is being tossed to and fro by the wind. He is characterized by restlessness. He's unsettled. He lacks conviction. Secondly, James says of this man who doubts, that this man must not think that he will receive anything from the Lord. The man who keeps vacillating, going back and forth, going back and forth, maybe God's going to help me, maybe he's not going to help me, maybe God's going to... God says, this man will receive nothing. Why? Why? In verse 8, he is a double minded man. In fact, he uses the same language later on in this book of James. Uh, in James chapter 4, verse 8, he says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Double-minded. The term that James uses here, double-minded, literally means two-souled. To have two souls. To be split right down the middle. This is a man who lacks resolution or trust or reliance upon God. He is opposite 
to the man in the Old Testament who is described as wholehearted. He is the opposite of the man who ought to love God with all his heart and with all his soul. This man is, is split in the middle. He's divided in his heart. He's the man, the double-souled man, the two-souled man, who, who the writer of Psalm 12 perceives as a hypocrite. And the fundamental reason why one should not doubt, it is precisely because doubt is indeed disloyalty to God himself. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Well, the passage before us invites us to pray. We, we are often concerned about intelligence. We wish we had, many of us would wish we had the capacity of an Einstein, for instance. But whereas we are concerned about intelligence, God is more concerned about wisdom. God is more concerned that we should live practically and righteously in our everyday lives. We need wisdom from God because without it, even our best intentions will never come to fruition. We need wisdom to handle the trials and the difficulties of life and to glorify God in them and to grow to maturation. We need wisdom because it is as we exercise wisdom that we are also imitating Christ, who we read in Luke chapter 2, 52, that he increased in wisdom and statue and in favor with God and man. We need wisdom. And we must go to God. We must beg God. We must plead with God to give us wisdom. We need to know that true wisdom is found in the fear of God. For it, it, it is as we recognize the greatness of God and the fact that God is sovereign and almighty and treat him with a deference that is required that we begin to grow in fear of God and we begin to grow in wisdom. But true wisdom must also be seen not only found in the fear of God, but found in relationship with Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 22 says, For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. And then in the penultimate verse, of this chapter in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. You see, my dear friends, you see, from the cross flows not only justification and sanctification, but wisdom. It is Christ that, who is our wisdom. And we only truly become wise when we have turned to Christ. So long as we seek to impress God with our goodness, so long as we seek to make our own way to heaven, we are fools. But it is only when we abandon our own self-made attempts and our own work righteousness, it is only when we come to Christ that we truly come to wise living. We truly find wisdom when we find Christ. But the wisdom, if it is to be displayed in our decisions and choices in life, we must go to God. If any man lacks wisdom, 
Let him ask of God. We must plead with God or give us wisdom. Not only to deal with trials, but to deal with all of the issues of life. Must I take a job in this company or that company? Must I move house? Must I downsize? Must I go into a retirement village? Whatever the issues are, we need wisdom. We will never be able to live this godly life, a God-glorifying life, unless we receive wisdom from above. We must ask God, not only for wisdom, but for every need, for every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of light in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Our need today is that we must pray. We do not receive because we do not ask. And we must come to God with our need for wisdom and for other needs, knowing that God is exceedingly generous. When I was growing up, I had friends, you probably could put them in quotation marks, who sometimes would, if it were fruit season, they would be walking around with baskets of oranges or apples or, or, or some other fruit, and then, or mangoes. And, and, and then they would say, well, you know what? I have so many mangoes, you can have some of these. And then you start picking one up and say, no, not that one. And then you take another and say, no, not that one. And then after a while you start realizing he doesn't want you to take any one of them that is, that is large in his eyes. All he wants you to take is the smallest ones, the ones that are not even good or have some defect. Well, that's generosity for you. But you see, that's not the generosity of God. God's generosity is a real generosity. He gives the biggest and the brightest. He gives his best. This is a God who has given his greatest gift in Jesus Christ. There is no other need that you have that can be greater than the need for Christ. And God has given you heaven's greatest gift. He will give you the smaller gifts, but you must ask. And you must keep on asking. Because you have a father who is generous and who delights to give. And if you keep asking and keep seeking, in due time, he will reward your prayers. He may not give you what you think you need, but he will give you what is best for you. But you must ask him. It's the means that he has devised for us to receive the things we need from him. And we must not doubt. We must not doubt. We must believe that God is able to do the impossible. We must believe when we ask that we have received. Jesus says, For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe you've received them. You must believe that God is willing and that God has already granted what you have asked of him. To do otherwise, to distrust, is to be two-souled. It is to be vacillating. It is to be tossed to and fro by the wind. Now, now let's be very clear before I wrap, here, wrap up here. It's, it is not that the scriptures are condemning all forms of intellectual ambivalence. There are times where it is perfectly legitimate to be unsure in our thinking. There are many people who, who are not sure about the doctrine of elections. 
The Bible doesn't consider that as, as someone who is a doubter, a two-souled person. That person lacks clarity. That's a very different thing. But the doubter is the one who distrusts the character of God, who does not hold on to the reality that God is fundamentally good and fundamentally generous. You must ask. You must ask in faith without doubting. Let me say finally, friends, but when you ask God, never consider him to be a dispensing machine. Don't think that because you pop a prayer off that there will be necessarily an answer. Because we are reminded by John, now this is the confidence that we have in him. If we ask anything, he will hear us. Is that what the verse says? No, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Let's ask God to give us the priorities that are upon his heart, let us seek his face and ask him for his best for us and trust him and wait upon his goodness. If any man lacks wisdom, but if any man lacks any need, let him ask of God. Let him ask of God in faith and without doubting, for Jesus' sake. Amen.